Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 22 of Daffy's Roundtable. This week, we have our first returning guest on this show, Justin Smith from Palmetto Coast Exotics and the Herpeticulture Network. Last time he was on for episode 11 to discuss the Herpeticulture Network itself and all the podcasts he's working on. This time, we're going to discuss what I'm sure you'll quickly be able to tell is one of Justin's favorite species, the green tree pythons. Before we begin, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Exoterra. They make quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's learn about chondros. Everybody, please help me welcome Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. Hello. How are you doing? I'm good, man. How are you? Second episode. Thank you for returning. Right. <laughs> yeah, man. When you're like, I want to talk green trees, like, of course, I'm always going to be down to, to talk some. I figured you would be. I figured you would be. Yeah, man. I they're they're a super interesting snake, and I know next to nothing about them. And I'm always hearing you refer to like I don't know if it's that, but that's, it's, that's this will definitely come up. But like maybe different morphs or locales, and mm-hmm. I definitely need to learn learn more about them. So yeah, I'm at, I'm at a point where I kind of I kind of feel bad because it feels like whether it's a corn stars episode or like something completely unrelated, I somehow managed to bring it back to Condros <laughs> somewhere or another, and I feel guilty because I'm sure there's like a whole running joke somewhere at my expense of like can't even do an episode on corn snakes about you know without talking about chondros and can't talk about anything but chondros and i just know there's like i learned a lot from them that i feel like can be applied to other stuff so and you think that's because they're a little bit harder than to keep in most species um not necessarily i think it's just you see more there's just certain sort of details i think you you see in those than you do in some of the species that are a little less attention consuming if that makes any sense yeah no yeah definitely yeah you don't need that you need to pay more attention to the detail um than in general yeah yeah there's just there's there's a fine tuning sort of aspect i think that you know corns and and rat snakes and stuff don't necessarily require so i don't there's i don't know i just there's a lot of things i find sort of parallels to, to green trees and like the whole experimenting with trying to figure out what works as far as feeding and, and breeding and other stuff like that. You know, you just, you kind of learn to, to realize what you like, you may not have it all figured out you probably don't, but you have or any like, species, <laughs> right. But because you've, you've sort of had to go out on a limb and sort of try one thing that maybe works for your, your particular room or your area, then maybe that might work for for something else you know i don't know it's no definitely makes sense evolving. it's still like yeah and also like you said it's still like the same they're they're being kept in the same room so the ambient temperature humidity everything in general is, is the same so no that, that that makes sense um okay let's start from the beginning i guess yeah. <laughs> um the basics of chondros like okay first of all where do they come from um do you know how long they've been in the hobby for um that kind of stuff yeah uh papua new guinea is so where well so you have it used to be erie and jaya it is now new guinea and west papua so it's basically split right down the middle and it's this it's this big landmass right above australia there used to be a land bridge there so the top of australia used to be connected to to papua new guinea um and so that is politically that has been split right down the middle pretty much and pretty much any we don't see anything in the hobby that comes from the right side of that which is so every, 
That is New Guinea. New Guinea. Okay. Yeah. Everything sure. we get is is from West Papua. Okay. So that's why like Erie and Jaya carpets, they're now called Popwins or West Papuan carpets. Um, all the conjurers we see in the hobby, at least in the States, in Europe, who knows? Surely someone somewhere has paid someone enough money to to get some stuff they're probably not supposed to have. Yeah. Um, but left side, that's where you get all of the conjurers we have currently uh, on this side of the, the pond. So uh, awesome. there's those. And then the Iron Range. So in Australia, there's that one sort of the that peninsula that comes out the top. Um, there are chondros there too that are, that have been cut off from that pop when population, you know, when that land bridge disappeared, there was a, a hand a population of chondros that got separated onto Australia and that's where they're at. And then everything else is, is up in Papua. So. Awesome. And then within that, um, so maybe let's, let's start off with that morph and lookout thing within that. Is there, so I hear you say like, uh, I'm going to probably, which are these named Biax, Arua, mm -hmm. um, that kind of stuff. Uh, are those locales within uh, Pop One? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, well, as of within the last, I don't know, three years, uh, Daniel Natouche went out and did a just a massive study of, of chondros on Papua. And it turns out, and it's something that, that a lot of us in the hobby, uh, you know, even before I got into chondros, everyone kind of suspected it was the case, but it turns out there's, at least right now he only recognizes uh four subspecies um he he said when i had him on the condor cast like i could have gone he, he said he could have gone a lot deeper than he did okay and probably would have been to have like would have had verifiable results from that but he's like i just stopped where i stopped so there's four subspecies currently uh and if you look at that so if pop was split in half if you take that west side of Papua and you put that in like four quadrants, so you split that down the middle and then you split it across, you have one, two, three, and four. That's kind of how the the subspecies sort of fit into into the way things are. Um, and so like Biox, those are their own subspecies. So I guess those are kind of an exception because they're their own island. And that was never an island that was part of Papua. That was a volcanic island that, that appeared on its own over you know however many millennia uh, millions of years and then you have your arus uh which are like the very southernmost group that's an island itself at the you know, sort of at the opposite end if you're looking at a map um those are i believe those remain morelia viridis um beox are Morelia viridis azuria. I don't are know they more I'm blue? On this, not necessarily. That's kind of the odd thing is they're not. Okay. I mean, there are some that I have that have sort of a, a bluish hue to to some parts of like the face and the belly and stuff, but as far as like bluish, not not really. Okay. Um, I believe to the so the top right quadrant that is Morelia viridis uterensis. And then the bottom portion, I'm going to look it up. <laughs> yeah, I could also, yeah, I could also do that on, on our pull up. Um, I had the paper somewhere. That's very interesting. Yeah, I asked about if, if the uh, Biox were, were the more blue because of Azurus from Dart Frogs. Uh, right. It could, right. it could have nothing to do with it. I was just. That's what you would think, but. Yeah small population in Australia, are there different subspecies as well? No, those are still considered. Um... 
Viridus. So those are still considered in the same sort of clade as the Arus are. Okay. Uh, let's see. So it's Viridus, and then it's Morelia. Okay, so it's Morelia Viridus, uh, Morelia Azuria Azuria, which is Biox, Morelia Azuria Uterensis, and then Morelia Azuria Pulker. And so the Uterensis is that top right quadrant uh, to the left. And this kind of, there's a mountain range that cuts right through the middle of that section too, um, which is kind of a natural divider in a sense. But that left side, that's Pulker. So that's going to be, um, let's see, your bird's head peninsula. So like, it all gets very confusing. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, no, that's it's just very interesting, though. Okay. Yeah, so like Sarong and stuff is going to be your your Pulker. Uh, Jayapura is going to be your Uterensis, which is more like the that's closer to the the right side of of Papua. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's right. Orig originally, it was just sort of split between your northern types and your southern types, um, but Natush came and, and did all that that studying and and looked at things pretty heavily. And it wasn't just a it wasn't just he went and looked at a couple animals. I mean, this was a, a very large study that he did that looked at these things. So um, it's very thorough. I know, like with taxonomy and stuff, a lot of times some of it is like somewhat questionable because maybe the sample size they looked at wasn't all that big to really determine if something's fully worthy of like a subspecies status. But um, yeah, this one was. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like I said, no one was really surprised because of course a lot of people were like, Oh look, you guys have been making intergrades and hybrids this entire time. It's like, we kind of knew that already. You know, no one really cared because the problem is, is in my opinion, with imports and stuff, you can't be 100% sure that that's exactly where that animal came from. So when you see Saurang or Jayapura or Maruki, um, basically that's, that's labeled, that animal's labeled as the main sort of city or hub that it was shipped out of. Right. So technically, like when you look at Maruki in particular, that's a that that whole there's like a this bowl that kind of goes around the, the southern part of the, the coast there in the middle of, of Papua before it splits into New Guinea. Um, that is very much more scrubland, almost more Australian type, like Darwin kind of kind of territory in terms of like the dryness and the and the stuff. It's not jungly, it's not sort of temperate jungle like majority of of the rest of the range is and so i asked natusha about that and he's he's told me that uh i think he said it on the show but there are no chondros like in maruki itself it's just it's not the right habitat it's too dry it's not it's not doesn't work well for that species in particular as far as like success um so when you see marukis it's likely they're coming from i believe above that or some of the surrounding areas sort of north of that main that city there um so uh, that's kind of awesome. the problem is like when you see these things come in, you kind of have to take it with a grain of salt. I mean, you could be 99.9% .9 sure that it came from there, but I don't think you can ever be 100% sure that it came from there without any sort of documentation and stuff. Cause you think about how many hands these things come in contact with between the time they leave and the time they get to where they're going. Um, Beox, I guess could kind of be the one exception sort of, 
because that is an island population and there's you know there's just biocs on biok there's not yeah you know we're not going to have to worry about sarongs being on biok and and things like that it's just it doesn't it doesn't happen so and another thing could be what's which one has the most value right now and they could be just sticking that name onto right it. and that's that's happened before where whatever locality in particular was was sort of the the, the flavor of the year um you know people change it and people who don't know any better uh you know see it and they think oh i'm getting a really good deal on something that's that's rare and no one really has um and then it just turns out it's just a scam you know no it makes sense it happens in again every species Mm -hmm. that makes sense and then so are there any uh visual differences between uh all the different locales yeah uh, I think when you get into sort of the the Uterensis and the Pulker, uh, Beox have a very distinct look in terms of chondros compared to the others in that in that race. Um, they're typically they'll have like sort of a more mottled sort of color to them. They're not going to be just a flat green. I, but you will see some that are just sort of a not necessarily a lime green, but sort of a dulled down maybe forest green. Um, those are the ones that also typically have a good bit of yellow on them as well, like like yellow spotting kind of model uh, model look to them. I know, yeah, I know what you're talking yeah, about. You yeah, you know what I mean. Um, yeah, it's when you get into like the Jayapura and the Manaquari and some of those other localities that are fairly close to one another uh, that it can get a little tricky, but. Um, after a while, if you spend enough time sort of looking at them and, and seeing them, you kind of get an idea of what's what. Um, Aru's are kind of the, a, a similar situation as the Biox, where those do kind of have a standout appearance to them. Um, it's almost more of a tamed down look in terms of like head structure and stuff that you see with the Biox. Okay. Uh, yeah, I was going to ask if there's any like uh, size difference as well. Or, or, yeah. Like, so Biox, yeah. Biox are the biggest... Okay. Historically, they're, they're they've been the biggest of the of the bunch, um, and I guess that also kind of de- it matters too. Is like in terms of like size difference in the wild versus size difference in captivity, for sure. Because the condors that you see in the wild, uh, you know, they're not big pythons. Even with what we have in captivity, that might be on the larger side. That's still not considered a large python, but you'd be surprised some of the some of the smaller ones that that some of the guys have bred. You know, you would look at that, and if you saw that on a table or something, you would say that there's no way that thing's of size to to be able to pull something off. But you know, I think it's there. I think they are at least the the stuff that's on like the mainland part. Um, I do think those sort of tend to run a little smaller than, than what we see with, with some of the other ones in captivity, like your Aru's and your Biox and stuff like that. But Awesome. Very cool. And I assume none or very rare from the Australian locale is around. Yeah. None. None. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's why, that's why so many guys want the, want the Marukis because those are the ones that look closest to the Australians. Okay. And the Australians like, those are interesting because they have it's just a perfect line of white dots like all of they just follow the spine and so you get some marukis that also have that um and it's no surprise because the the closest distance between marukis and those those australian ones like at one point that's where the bridge was they, they would be um, yeah so it yeah it's uh 
that's that's one that's in high demand. I've also seen plenty of Marukis though that didn't have any of that going on, and they were they were just green. You know, they weren't still pretty snakes, but of course, I think to find the ones that have that sort of white stripe, it's they're much rarer. Um, and regular, I mean, just the regular green Marukis, they're nice and all, but they don't they don't do much for me. Okay, you know, I just I yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. Uh, are you still keeping any chondros at the moment? Oh yeah. Yeah, I see. Yeah, okay. Uh, do you know which which ones you have? Biox, I think. I have some Biox, so I've got kind yeah. of most of what I have right now are Biox, and most pretty much all of them are males. Go figure. Um, I think this was the problem with, with the last time you were on here as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I I had still no female. I produced one clutch back in 2019. Um, it was two Bioc type animals. I have no background information, so I call them Bioc types. Typically, if you see type with a locality, that's kind of the unsure version. Yeah, that's like this is what it looks like, but I can't 100% say that this is what it is. Yeah. Um, like mom definitely had sort of the, the Bioc sort of phenotype and, and size to her, and dad is sort of the he's the one that maybe I wondered if he was he was some sort of outcross or something because he had kind of a lot going on, but I also got him as an adult and he was. He was uh, definitely an import, um, and Biox typically have the the personalities of that that chondros get, you know, the stereotypical bitey, just nasty tempered, not very pleasant to be around. And some people say that that the stereotypical attitude isn't really warranted, as, you know, with Biox in particular. In my experience, it's it's usually pretty well deserved. Um, the exception being, so I have one holdback from that first clutch, and it's a it's from those two Biox, and that snake is completely mellow. You know, okay. I still have Dad, and Dad's Dad's horrible. He's the worst. I, I don't I don't spend much time with him. Yeah. Um, and then the other younger male, well, he's not younger now. He's probably coming up on three years. Uh, he's not bad either. He's just kind of once you get him out, he's okay. But it's that initial sort of fight of getting him out that that can be kind of troublesome because. They're Morelia, so if you've ever kept carpet pythons before, you know as soon as you open those doors, like they're expecting food, like right off the rip. Yep. Um, Condors are no different. Like I slide out those bins and that that Cambro rack, and I'm almost always around. greeted with an open mouth, you know, waiting That's for something. Awesome. Or you know, they'll see me in the room and they'll start caudal luring, so they'll move their tail around like a worm, uh, expecting something to come by and grab it, thinking it's food, so they can grab it. Um, okay. So that's actually one of the questions I had for you. Sorry to pick you up. So yeah. they're not. So not all. Green tree pythons are, um, I don't want to use the word aggressive, but very defensive or um, like, like you can't, you can't get them yeah, to, to, yeah. to docile and handleable and all that. Yeah, no, I have, I mean, I have some that, you know, I have one in particular, he's a, I'm fairly certain it's a male. Uh, I just posted him on Instagram the other day. Like he's one of those ones where if I open the tub, he's, he's going for movement, whatever it is, doesn't matter if it's food or not, he's going to swing, swing at it. Uh, but once he's out, like the chilla snake no problems whatsoever it's just that initial sort of morelia feeding response of like quick something's moving it's food grab it you know bite first ask later yeah. um and most of mine are like that like i can i can pull them out even the smaller the little uh juvenile i have right now from my buddy luke um pretty feisty in the tub as soon as he's out though they're, once they realize that it's it's not food or a serious threat you know they're they're pretty chill, but I do have like that adult male that I have. He is definitely he's since day one since I got him. He's been he's been rather prickly. So. Yeah, 
prickly that's a good yeah. word prickly yeah so i don't <laughs> i don't play with him a whole lot um but all the other ones like my designer stuff mellow um it also seems to be pretty individual uh like case by case kind of thing like i've got two other snakes from luke that, that are coming up on three years well maybe four years old now uh and I don't play with them much. They're pretty chill once they're out, but it's they're they're both clutch mates. One of them is definitely a little more odd and like skittish. The other one doesn't seem to care so much when I'm messing with her. So it is kind of an individual thing too. And you know, if you want a calmer chondro, I definitely think if it's a Bioc in particular, try to shoot for captive bred. Uh, if it's a chondro really period i would say captive bread is going to make your life a lot easier um start with a younger animal too i in my experience imported adults you're probably not going to get them to chill out they're they're, they're usually going to stay fairly high strung um and i'm sure that could be worked with over time but i mean getting bit by chondro sucks it's not it's not much fun they it's got fun they got pretty big teeth so yeah that makes sense but you, so you mentioned uh, multiple times already, uh, wild caught versus captive bred. Actually, so um, mm -hmm. maybe let's let's talk about that for a second. Is so they're commonly brought in as wild caught as well. Yeah, do you, yeah. Do you so they are see? they are still imported in in really large numbers, especially biox. Okay. Uh, you'll often see ads that say farmed or captive hatched, and it's like that's sort of just a fancy with what. In old articles that I read, you'd see pictures of these farms like that are breeding chondros and so basically they get these females they lay eggs they hatch those eggs those are what they import out right um so you'll see captive captive hatched or farmed and it's like it'll it'll be a, a neonate chondro so it's it's kind of a gray area where it's like yeah technically it was hatched in captivity but it's not like it was truly captive bred from captive bred lineage and captive bred animals you know it's it's a it's a selling point you still don't know their history and do you see a lot of like um so like with mountain horn dragons for example a lot of them come in with like worms and parasites and all that mm -hmm. is it the same thing for carpet or uh, chondros or are they usually pretty no I've, I've i've had a few that definitely came in with worms and that you know you notice that they have you know a bowel movement or something and there yeah. was a point where there was just worms in it everywhere you know, and it's it's one of those things where it's not something. I mean, I'm not a vet, but I'm. When I dealt with it, it was one of those things where it's like I'm not gonna treat it right away. Like the, you don't want to have the snake come in, and within you know that same like couple days, week long period, you're throwing any sort of dewormer into it or something like that because it's already stressed, it's already immunocompromised. You're just gonna do more damage than actually fixing anything. Like they can ride with worms for a little bit. Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not gonna sense. let them. I'm not gonna let them ride with worms for like a year, but a couple weeks, you know, two months, whatever, while they're in quarantine, get them eaten, get them hydrated, and then, you know, do whatever you need to do. Take them to a vet, get it figured out. Because um, I, I did have a, a younger animal, one of the probably I think the third or fourth green tree I got. I got it at a show. It was a little imported biok. Um, noticed worms and some bowel movements and i was like okay i'm gonna give it some time and i'll, I'll hit it later because it was smaller too it wasn't a like a fresh baby yeah. but it was definitely inside of a year um and I, I let it ride too long and i ended up losing that animal but it's one of those things where it's like you're not on some sort of crazy clock where it's like i have to get these gone within you know 36 hours or this animal's gonna die it's like 
they've they've lived with them for a while. The difference is is now they're in captivity. There's a different stress factor there, um, and there's a risk of spreading it to another collection, to the rest of the collection, and all that. Yeah, that I didn't worry about as much because if you're you know you're being smart as far as. Uh, not even that, but just like tools you're using, making sure you're disinfecting things and um, whatnot. You know, it's worms are, are usually my least worry when it comes to that kind of stuff. Because um, you think about it, I mean, it's a parasite. And the point of a parasite is not to kill its host. It needs its host to survive and carry on, you know. Right, so it's yeah. like, if you kill the thing you're you're using to hitch a ride on, like you're you don't too. get very far in the evolutionary sort of standpoint of things. So yeah. like they can live with them for a while. It's not something I'm going to let them go forever having like i will i will deworm them at some point it's not just going to be something that i'm going to like rush to do right away um and i find that it's the, it's the same with you know ganyasoma and and Bowiga and stuff like that it's like if you you rush to do that those are already high strung species especially you know when they're imported and they're brought in in these these larger numbers it's like you just need to give them some time to get settled and eating and hydrated and they already come in super skinny and super yeah, stressed, like you yeah. said. That the that the dewormer could kill them instead of yeah being yeah. anybody. Yeah, I know 100. That definitely makes sense. Awesome. Um, so back to colors. Um, I see a lot of people post pictures of their condors changing colors as they grow. Is this something that always happens, or do you ever get colors that, like uh, I guess neonates that retain their color till they're adults? Uh, that also depends. Um you're not going to have one that comes out green. Okay. They're Ever. either depending on what locality it is you're dealing with. Cause you have some that'll have only yellow babies, at least that we know of. Yeah. Um, like Aru's there's never been a red baby documented from an Aru, at least in the U S I've heard some claims that it has happened, but who's to say, yeah. um, Beox, you get a mix of red and yellow. Um, from the same parents, like from the same, from the same clutch, clutch be mixed. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. awesome. Okay. Yeah. Um, what I was told and what I found with my first clutch, if you have, uh, like my female, if you, if you can see an adult Bioc, uh, or some of the other localities for that matter, you can tell if they were with, with fairly decent certainty, whether they were a red or a yellow neonate as adults, it's not a hundred percent, but it is, it's a pretty good indicator. Kind of like um, on the shading of the green or so the the like when you have what's a good example? Um like the Beox, they get these triangles that go, you know, there's like yeah. a black line down the spine, and then there's these triangles that alternate down the back. Yeah. Um if those triangles are just like the outline of that and it's empty inside, that was likely a red neonate. If it's filled in with like a light blue, um Sometimes there's like this sort of like ghosting effect, I guess is kind of the word for it, where it's filled in in a sense, even though you can sort of barely tell. Um, that's typically a sign that it was a yellow neonate. Um, that's very cool. And so like my female was a red and my male was a yellow. And I was told, and in my experience with that first clutch, they were all reds. If you have an animal that's that's red dominant, you're likely to get more reds than yellows. My entire first clutch was nothing but reds. So one of them was more dominant so, for reds. Yeah, the female, I think, was the was, was the one who did it. So that's very interesting. And then where does the blue come in? It's not a color of a neonate. They grow into blue. Yeah, that also depends too. Because I mean, if you're dealing with like designer animals, you're likely 
depending on the lineage and depending on what's going on, you may be more likely to see some of those blues earlier on uh, with something like sort of your standard um, Saurongs, Manaquaris, stuff that, that tends to naturally have a little more blue to it. Uh, I noticed that it's that's that seems to be kind of one of the last things that sort of comes in, at least on the dorsal with that pattern. Cause you'll see neonates that have a pattern and it's darker in the, the red or the yellow um, yellows in particular. And over like, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's more visible in the yellows, obviously, cause it's a, yeah. a higher contrast. Yeah. Um, you'll see that, that brown or black pattern eventually turn into like this blue. It's odd. Like see, especially seeing reds go from, from red to green over time. Yeah. Yellows, they kind of just go from yellow to green. But reds, it's like they transition to like this orange and then they transition to like this green. It's really, it's kind of bizarre. And then you get these weird in-between colors where it's like this greenish, orange, odd, just bizarre color. But then the, the blues tend to sort of pop up in the pattern later. Um, but it's, yeah, it's dependent on, on what you're dealing with. Like I said, with some of the designer stuff, you'll notice these things a little earlier on. Um, and then it depends, like the color change itself also depends too on the, uh, on the locality you're dealing with. Like Beox take a really long time to change from, from neonate to adult color. Like years or? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, years. Wow, okay. If there's even some people that have, that have said they may never be, they never, may, they never finish changing. They just like, keep, they, they may continue to change, you know, as they get older, it's going to be much more, uh, nuanced and maybe not as noticeable. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, Beox, you're looking at, I think five, five years easy wow. of, of transition. Okay. Wasn't um, expecting it's much, that, yeah. yeah. It's much slower with those two, uh, which it's fun, but it's also kind of the frustrating part because it's, it's like, if you're trying to figure out what you want to hold back and what you want to part with, right. You pretty much have to sit on stuff indefinitely to have a, a good idea. Um, it's... So do most people sell adult chondros instead? Like they're holding back for longer or? No, no. no? I think, okay. I mean, you'll, a lot of the adults that I see on like on morph market for sale are typically imports from the looks okay. of it. Uh, yeah. Like Ian Bissell, who's down in Florida. He, he seems to have some, they're not adults, but maybe sub adults or, or two year old animals. Um, yeah. For sale on a, on a pretty yeah. regular basis, but it's either pretty much imported adults or, or neonates. Okay from from what i've seen so very interesting and then yeah so they're called neonates as as young snakes um that's is that primarily just for them or is this most uh pythons and or snakes no snakes in general reptiles snakes in general, in general. okay so like fresh out the egg neo meaning new natal being okay yes i didn't know the term i didn't know the term in bio i didn't know if it was just like specifically like that's what you guys call them no as, as but I, it definitely seems to be more much, common or more popular more commonly yeah. used in condos and other stuff and if it just it's a habit that's just stuck and crossed over to other stuff i have too but um, okay you know after a certain period of time it's they're not really a neonate anymore because they're not all that new they've been around for you know nine months a year i'd still i'd consider those a juvenile at some point but like fresh out the egg those are neonates so. yeah so okay so let's yeah let's talk about fresh out the egg so i've heard from from past Contro uh, Controcast episodes that they can be pretty tough to get feed to get started feeding and then generally you guys hold them before you start selling them for quite a while just to make sure that everything's okay. 
Yeah, that's going to depend on on the on the breeder. Some people like to hold on to them for twenty meals, you know, until they've had twenty consecutive meals with no issues. Some people do it, you know, once they've had fifteen. Um, it just it depends on the person who's who's doing them. It's the thing is, is like chondros aren't cheap, yeah. especially right now. Like chondro prices lately have been just astronomical. And so I think a lot of it is that's not only for the person buying, but that's also for the person breeding because they want to make sure that when they send this animal off, they put a lot of, you know, there's a lot of sweat equity in these things. Like, yeah, it's a process getting them going. Like, that's a big part of why condors are so expensive, because it takes time to get them to the point to where I can just send it to you and you can feed it and you're not going to have any single problem with that animal. Like, it's going to be completely issue free. That takes work to get there. And so that's why chondros there's a there's a big price hike in chondros but i think a lot of that holding onto them until they've had these consecutive meals is so that when you get that animal you're not gonna have any problems um i can rest assured that you're not gonna have any problems uh and most chondro guys too also seem to be pretty good about you get the animal oh it's not eating okay we'll give it some time try it again it's not eating again okay and then they ship it back to the breeder breeder will get it going again and send it back um i that yeah. seems like a pretty common practice um and why but is yeah, that? Why just, do they struggle so much? Like, what makes them so tough to feed? Or are they just picky eaters? Or I think a lot of it is us trying to get sort of fit the square peg in the circle, if that makes right. sense. Like, as neonates, so they go through this this ontogenetic color change, right, from red to yellow. Uh, it's not just color that changes in that aspect. Like, they're changing habitat from the time they're younger to when they get older. Right. Um, they're changing diet from the time they get younger to when they get older. Uh, it's like a complete shift. Um, and so when we're trying to feed them pinkies uh, and sort of mammalian diet at a younger age like that, the likelihood that they're eating that in the wild is probably pretty slim. Where a lot of people are fairly certain that they're eating small skinks, small frogs. Uh, there's like one documented case of someone finding one eating a moth. Um, Interesting. Which makes sense. I mean, they're 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 tiny. They're tiny when they come out of the egg. Like when I first hatched mine, I mean, a the eggs themselves, I was expecting to be a lot smaller because you see pictures online, but they're all like super close up, and so you kind of get you don't know. you yeah, think you... that it's a bigger size egg than it is. But I mean, honestly, I don't think mine were really any bigger than a corn snake egg. Uh, which side note is another interesting thing that I saw because at the same time I had my clutch, Jake just had his first clutch of of popping carpets. Okay. And oddly enough, the popcorn carpet was like half the size of my female chondro. She only laid eight eggs. My female chondro was like twice the size of that popcorn. She laid 16. And, and which eggs, eggs were, were almost bigger? The, the popcorn carpets. Like the chondro eggs were almost half the size of like you could fit two of those chondro eggs in one Inside. of those popcorn eggs. Is really bizarre because it's like that's a smaller snake that lays huge eggs. This is a yeah. bigger snake that lays a ton of smaller eggs. Um, I don't even know where I was going with that, but no, that's interesting. So the babies, it was were the carpet babies bigger than the chondro oh, babies yeah. as well? Yeah, that's crazy. Okay. Shot. Like those yeah. babies came out tiny. I initially weighed them all, and I think the smallest one that came out, I want to say, was like four grams, and the biggest I think was I was not expecting maybe seven or eight. Yeah, okay. man. Yeah, that's like baby gecko size. That's yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. Okay, they're, they're small and. and it, uh, what do you when you look at them, yeah, no, sorry, go ahead. Yeah. When they're when you're looking at them that tiny, it's like 
you look at even like a day old pink and you're like, this is still a pretty big meal. Yeah. You know, it's pretty large. Um, so I initially, when I first hatched mine, I was like, you know, I'm not going to try scenting with anything. I'm going to see what I can get going right off the bat. Yeah. Which turned out to be like, I think two out of the eight, I think that hatched. Um, and I kept putting it off, you know, scenting because for whatever reason, and here's another weird aspect of condors that just doesn't make sense. Is like as babies, they're not eating birds. Even as adults, they're not really eating birds that often. Like that's a big misconception is that condors eat a lot of birds. Like they've the studies they've done, what they do is they hang out in the tree during the day. At night, they go down to the trunk of that tree, wrap themselves around it as an anchor, and they just sit on these little trails where like mice and stuff move around and they just wait. And if they don't eat, sun comes up they go back up to the top of that tree hang out next night same thing until they get a meal so they're not primarily bird eaters so they're not primarily bird eaters i thought they um, were okay cool unlike emerald tree boas which are kind of the you know those are known to eat eat more birds but um chondros yeah i think the, the bulk of what like it's not that they won't eat birds it's just the bulk of their diet that they found in in specimens in the wild was was largely mammalian um like rodent-like stuff they have there, not necessarily rats per yeah, se. I forget sure. exactly what species they have, but rat-ish kind of animals. Something squirrels, something hamsters. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. And so for whatever reason, if you put chick down on these pinkies, like you pinch off some of the down off a frozen chick and you put you make like a little mohawk on the pinky, they go nuts for it. Like when I first tried feeding, none of them would take just straight pinkies. And I was like, I tried braining. I tried, you know, scenting with some other stuff. I think before I finally just bit the bullet and bought some chicks, uh, frozen chicks. And as soon as I put down on there, I went from like having like, I think two of them eat maybe two or three times on a consistent basis to like every single one of them just nailed it. Like it was almost like the, the switch had flipped. Like all of a sudden they, they, they knew how to eat like before it was like, I'm going to strike at it. I think it's something trying to get me. I don't want anything to do with it. It's not food, whatever you put the down on there though, man. And it was like instantaneous. It was like they had been doing it the entire time. And it just, it's so odd because at that size, they're not eating birds. I mean, maybe if they somehow happen to be in the vicinity of like a small bird nest, that's closer to the ground. Cause when they're babies, they're not up high in trees. They're in like very low lying shrubbery kind yeah. of stuff. <clears throat> But for whatever reason, it works. I was going to uh, say, maybe like, uh, like you know, grouse or something that's laying their eggs on the floor. Or maybe they have kiwi who knows, or something yeah. over there and they're eating birds. On the floor. That's very interesting. Or maybe it is like not the down itself, but the feeling of having fuzz or fur maybe. rather than just skin. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. That's that is super interesting, though. It's so just you're, one of those things that on paper it should not make sense, but it works. And it's it's been proven with plenty of people that have bred them too that that just seems to be like the secret. And parakeet down was another one uh, that seemed to work really well. And I was I was trying to I went to my local PetSmart and was trying to like raid their their parakeet. The like yeah, I was like, look, <laughs> like this is gonna be weird, but I literally just need all the fluff and stuff that you have there on the on the bottom of the cage. Did they give it to you? I think every time, dude. My PetSmart was keeping those things meticulously clean. Every time I went there, like I would go there like every three days trying to see if there was anything there. Spotless every time. They'd have like six parakeets in there. 
they knew you were Nothing. coming they were cleaning them in advance <laughs> either that or it was just slow and they just had time to keep them clean like that but i was like this yeah. is just frustrating because all my friends were like going to PetSmart and petco and they're like got a whole ziploc bag full of down and stuff and I'm like what the hell so that's very interesting and then um do you try to feed them anything other than pinkies at that age uh i didn't no. i Within the last couple months, I've started feeding my older animals, and even that one younger one, I offered them frog legs. That's what I was wondering. Okay, yeah, um, you haven't tried it with any of the neonates. I haven't tried it with neonates. Okay. Whenever I get another clutch, I don't know when that's going to be. All my animals, minus the the two older Bioc males, um, I don't know when they're going to be ready. It'll probably be, I was hoping it would be closer to the end of this year that I'd be breeding again, but I think it's probably going to be the end of next year that I'll be doing it. Um, but I'm definitely anxious to try frog legs because there's what I do with the smaller one I have now is I'll just cut off a chunk of the muscle from like the thigh and offer it to him. Something that's about the same size as like a pinky or a fuzzy. And he's all about it. You know, almost all the condors I have, if I offer them frog legs, like frozen thawed, they jump on them, which also surprised me. I mean, I, I have some buddies that were like, I'm not surprised by that at all. You know, it makes sense. And I just like, as adult, like older animals, I, I didn't expect them to, to eat it without hesitation. Like they have, yeah, like I've got well, some I offer to them, and they just they down it like must smell good. <laughs> I guess I don't yeah. think it does. But. Yeah, no, but yeah, man. But you mentioned they were they were eating like uh, skinks and and frogs and stuff like that. So maybe that just it's more uh, more natural smell. Yeah, to them, I guess. Yeah. yeah, super super interesting. Um. So and then I've heard you discuss uh, on past contracast since we're talking about uh, feeding and all that. I've heard you discuss. Um, assist feeding them at that age is that like mm -hmm. something you absolutely have to do with every single one or is it just the really picky ones and then also how do you do it um i went out on a limb and did it with the clutch that i had before i got the down uh i wasn't so i've i've tried assist feeding uh slash force feeding like whole pinkies to, to multiple species. Not, I think I tried it with the condors and very quickly gave up. I've tried it with other stuff and very quickly gave up for whatever yeah. reason. I don't know how guys can fit a whole pinky and get it started into the, into the gullet of some of these snakes. Cause every time I've tried it, it was a freaking disaster. It never worked. I could never get it down far enough to where they would just start eating it on their own. So I'm all about team tails. So okay. I'll just, I was just cutting off. Like I breed my own feeders. So I, I, freeze you know a bag or a batch and i was at the point where i would just cut the tails off before I, I froze them um they were dead they were euthanized humanely and everything like that i wasn't cutting them off live mice and then freeze them <laughs> in the freezer um yeah <clears throat> and so i just cut the tails and freeze those separately just to have them because i mean you're not taking a, anything away from the bigger animals that are eating the whole mice you know so um i was just doing tails and i did this with the the boiga cyanian and stuff too um I think I did it with, I probably did it with some corns or some bears that were being stubborn feeders, but um, the tails are just so much easier because if you cut them at like a little beveled edge, kind of gives you a little wedge to sort of open the mouth uh, and it'd be wet. So there's some sort of lubrication to it. And I would just, I'd grab them very gently, at least with baby chondros in particular. Uh, you have to be super, they're, they're very delicate when they're, when they're tiny like that. Um, yeah, I'd be worried of crushing them. Yeah, I mean, after doing this, though, I learned that they're they're a little tougher than maybe we give them credit for physically. Um, but I would I would grab them behind the head and I would 
pop a tail in them and then sort of let them hang so that they have to sort of swallow it. Uh, and I never had any issues. I was very gentle in terms of like the biggest thing I think when you're dealing with like handling smaller condors like that is that you're not pulling. Like if it's moving and you want it to go from one hand to the other or something that you don't like pull it and stretch out those vertebrae and stuff in the spine and whatnot. You want to let it just right. completely move on its own. Like pretend your hands are, are like sticks or rock and just don't move them and let them do their thing. Um, with these, like I said, very gently grabbed them, put a tail in them, you know, put it halfway, two thirds, uh, and then let them hang. And they, they'd eat it on their own. Like once it was in there, they would kind of get the idea and they just, they, they'd swallow it and Start it got better over down, time. Yeah. yeah. Um, I would do that, and it was the same way with the cyania when I hatched out those. was like, tail them, you know, a couple days later, offer them a pinky. If they didn't take the pinky, they got another tail. And basically just repeated that until they finally took off on their own, until I got the chick down with the chondros. And then once I did that, you just put a little tuft on there and then offer it to them. And then over time, you slowly either just offer straight pinkies or you just put less and less of the down on the pinky uh, each meal until they finally switch over. But they're one of those species, though. I mean, they really like chondros. Challenge. Really, they're they can be. Uh, it was one of those things. So my very first chondro experience was back in like when was that? I think it was like two thousand nine. Okay. My first chondro got it off underground. Got it, kept it the way that so many people think they're supposed to be kept, which was like super hot, super humid like little naturalistic kind of setup that thing died in a month. Okay. And how I, do you keep them now? I had, well, I'd spent a ton of money on this thing. And so I got <laughs> it and died. I was like, I'm never going to own these things again. I was like, this thing sucks. Like it was a Biox, So it was mean as shit. And it just was not enjoyable. Like it, it was like, this is horrible. Um, now I realize after keeping them that they're very easy to overthink. Um, right now I keep them, very simple, like decent sized water bowl. I keep mine on puppy pads. Uh, they have a perch. I have some live plants like pothos growing in the water bowl, uh, which I think helps with humidity and, and sort of airflow and stuff naturally. I think if you try to, if you, if you think that they come from like this super humid, like emerald tree boa, similar habitat, which is the complete opposite really of, of what they're dealing with. Um, you're probably going to have a bad time. Like it's not going to work out very well. You can keep them in naturalistic setups. I think to me, it's more of a headache than, than what it's worth. Um, to me, keeping them simple and, and, you know, sterile. Uh, yeah, it's not as appealing visually. It's not, it's not nearly as sexy, but it, it seems to work out really well. Um, yeah. right now, I think the only one that I have that's on heat is actually that little, juvenile that i have in my my hatchling rack um the other ones are just at ambient temperatures which whatever the room is at uh because of that aki cage i have now my room stays in like the upper 70s maybe may definitely not mid but lower 80s um and so they're, they're not maybe, a hot species they're not i think but that's that's sort of where the, the the nuance of what i was talking about comes in of like it depends on where you live like up where you're at, 
Yeah. You may not be able to get away with an ambient room temperature if your room just isn't that warm all the time. Yeah. Um, down here, because my room is considerably smaller than I'd like it to be, uh, and because I have that Aki cage going where it's you know a hotspot of 180, yeah. the whole room heats up to it gets pretty warm. And I have a window in my room, so that gets afternoon sun, so that bumps it up. And so it got to the point where I was like working in there cleaning stuff. I was like, this is too hot, so I just so cut sweet. the heat off everything. Yeah. except that Aki cage and except that hashling rat. Cause I was like, this is I'd walk in and like all the snakes would be hugging the cool end of the cages. Like all the yeah. condros would be at the front of the tub. Uh, and so I was like, okay, it's, it's just too hot. And I think they do fine uh, at cooler temperatures. It's just going to be completely dependent on where you live in your room situation and stuff. Um, That's very cool. I, yeah, I had no idea. I also yeah. thought they were super high humidity, and I mean, I've never, no, never no. thought of keeping them or anything, so I don't know. But I, that's that's super interesting. And then, so what? How much has changed in that in the information since two thousand nine? Your first time keeping chondros now, like, oh well, a lot, a uh, lot, yeah. So Doctor Justin Julander and Terry Phillip put out a book back in twenty seventeen. That was uh, the natural history and captive maintenance of green tree pythons. And that's the newest book that's coming on Chondro since the complete Chondro, which was released by Greg Maxwell back in like the early 2000s, maybe the late 90s. And a lot had changed since then. I mean, <clears throat> so the problem with green trees in particular is I think there's always been this sort of outdated care information that's carried over from like the 90s and before that where people were under the impression that they were kept super hot. They were yeah. kept super wet. You know, they, they needed all these things. Um, and basically this book that, that Julander and Philip came out with showed data from like the range of these animals, what they're dealing with in the wild, how much they're eating, you know, adult sizes in the wild in comparison to captivity. Uh, it touches on some of the localities and some of the other stuff, but not really in depth. It's more, much more of a natural history book. And so basically it came in and said, we've been keeping these things wrong for the last like 40 years. Yeah. You know, like yeah. they're not naturally getting really, I think the hottest it might get in some parts of Papua are like maybe the low nineties, but even then that doesn't seem to be a very common occurrence. And then that's probably so even not where they're sitting anyway. Right. Right. Well, that's, that's sort of like, I have the, the, like I call it operational temperature. Like during the day, condors aren't moving around. They're sleeping. They're nocturnal. Like without yeah. a doubt, they are lights are off, they're moving. Um, so in the heat of the day, you know, the daytime highs, they're not out and about. They're curled up, hanging out. As soon as that nighttime comes and those temps drop and stuff, that's when they're moving around. So like I don't even when I have a hot spot on mine, which I I don't anymore, I would keep it at like 86 tops. And even then, sometimes I think that 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 would almost be a little too warm, but I'm in the Southeast U S so heat and humidity is rarely a problem down here. Um, but the basis of, of that book was like, we're keeping them too hot. We're keeping them too wet and we're feeding them entirely too much. Like we're keeping them too fat. Oh, um, okay. Uh, do they, they don't need half as much in the wild. Yeah, that's man. That's it's incredible. Like that's one of the things with condors that has had me like rethinking almost everything about snakes and how we're, how we're keeping them. Um, and a lot of that is like feeding, like how how little these things need to to be fine, Do well, to live yeah. fine mm -hmm. and, and be okay and be healthy. Um, they found 
you know, they've done necropsies on condors that hadn't eaten in a year. And the fat, fat stores on those things was unreal. Wow. Like they, they literally don't, they, they run on nothing. You okay. know? Yeah. Uh, and that's always a big debate in terms of condors. Is like, should you feed mice? Should you feed rats? Um, I'm team mouse. You're too, just, just because I'm, I'm a firm believer in like leaner and smaller meals, maybe slightly more consistent, but even then, my feeding schedule with the green trees minus the, the juvenile has been like, if I can't remember the last time I fed them, they're probably due. Like they really, they don't need a lot. They will literally eat. If you offer them food every day, like they will without a doubt, take it. Eat. Yeah. Okay. I've I had find, some find the same like, thing with my carpet. Yeah. Yeah. Exact same thing. Like yeah. I've had, I fed my, my hold back Bioc literally gave it like a frog leg or something. And it goes right back to the perch and starts caught alluring again. It's like, I literally just fed you. Like, what What the hell? Like, they will eat every time you give it to them. And it's because they're, you know, they're biologically programmed to never pass up a meal. Right. Because in the wild, they're not eating much. You know, yeah. they're striking out all the time, you know, with hunting and, and ambush, you know, waiting in ambush and stuff like that. So when the opportunity comes, you got to get gonna, it. Yeah, they're going to take advantage of it every time you give it to yeah. them. And <clears throat> It's one of those species, too, where uh, kind of like with what I dealt with crested geckos, it's like it's super easy to get them to gain weight, get them to lose weight without just flat out starving them indefinitely. It's, it's freaking impossible. Yep. It's not going to happen. Um, and that's sort of one of the things I was actually talking to to my buddy Luke and uh, David Brahms. Um, you know, we were kind of chewing the fat on like diets and stuff like that. And now that I've started feeding frog legs, I'm like, maybe we can curb this this like fatty chondro problem by alternating with frog legs, which are pretty much nothing but muscle and bone. There's no fat like, on them. There's no fat on those things. Yeah. Um, like alternate so that they're not just getting, you know, these fatty rodents, especially rats, um, just to kind of help sort of smoothen that, that curve a little bit. So that they're staying, they're sort of maintaining less than, than just packing on. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they really are yeah. some of the easiest snakes to keep. Like they get overthought, like they get they get cared to death is kind of what I've what I've called it is like people worry about killing them so much that they end up killing them because they're worried about killing them, you know, and it's one of those things where it's like they're they're a snake that does great if you kind of just forget they exist. Like yeah. if you put them in your room and you just kind of ignore them. They do phenomenally. They thrive on negligence. They do. <laughs> no, that makes sense. That Yeah, I love them. They're not exciting snakes to keep. Um, if you're looking for something that's active and sort of doing stuff, these ain't it. They are always out, which is nice. Like they're always perched and hanging out. So for display, they're, Good they're excellent. Species, yeah. It doesn't get much better than that, honestly. Yeah. But in terms of like something that's sort of like more interactive, like a Brettles python or a carpet, you know, they're they don't they're not much. they're not exciting snakes. They are fairly boring, but you know, they make up for it in in appearance. So yeah. Like you said, it's a good thing they're pretty. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Well, I, I that's pretty much everything I had written up, uh, like questions written up for you. But I, I, I have heard you mention um, call luring a few times, so maybe we'll wrap mm -hmm. up with that. Um, I've also heard in the past you mentioning something about king tails if they're handled too young. So does that have anything to do with the fact that they do call luring, or is that something like are they just more prone to having a king tail? No, the caudal luring is is a hundred percent an evolutionary thing that you know, them and 
Uh, I've even seen Brettles pythons do it in some videos uh, on Instagram and stuff, which I've never seen a Brettles do it personally with any that I've kept in the past, but it's something a lot of species do. Uh, cause a lot of times too, chondro tails, their, their tail is like usually black. Like the tip is black, almost like someone had dipped it in ink. Yeah. Um, and similar to like the copperheads we have down here where neonates have just this bright green, like neon green or yellow tail tip. And they do the same thing where they just, they sit and they wait and they just wiggle the tail and that's all that moves. And they just wait for something to come up and grab that. And that's when they grab it and eat it. So it's, it's literally a, a like a fishing lure where they kind of like how alligator snapping turtles use their tongue. Yep. to do the same thing to simulate a worm so a fish comes and grabs it it's the, it's the exact same thing and um watching them do it it's funny because they just they sit completely still they don't move and you just see that tail just going crazy and they'll like rub it along their body and like really sell it you know um and they all i mean pretty much all of them do it i don't think i've ever seen one not caught a lure at some point or another <laughs> it's pretty funny to watch too because I'll be in the room and if even especially when I have like some mice or something warming up in the they in can the smell bucket, it bucket, then you see them all. It's like you look in each tub and they're all like moving it around. Um, as awesome. far as the kinking goes, that's so the sort of the, yeah, the bigger issue there. there is like when you handle them young and you're if you handle them too rough, you won't see kinks right away. That's something that will develop down the road. So you okay. won't realize it's kinked until they get older and those bones and, and ligaments and stuff in between have had more time to, to develop and sort of finalize, if that's what you want to call it. Yeah. Um, I know sort of the general rule is don't handle chondros that are under a year old. It, Like I said, it can be done. I don't necessarily recommend it. If you do do it, just don't put any force on them. Don't pull them. You know, don't be rough with them. Like literally let them move at their move own move around you yeah yeah um and that's only if you really have to uh fortunately because of their arboreal you know they they do ride a hook pretty well getting them off the hook is a different story that's a little bit more of a pain but um a lot of poking yeah, involved, I mean, they're, I'm sure yeah yeah, of, <laughs> yeah you, you tap their tail kind of like with, with carpets you know they're apt to to move but um yeah in terms of of so we talked about temperature a little bit too but like humidity um because that is kind of important with these guys too. Yeah, yeah. Or uh, anything else that you can think of that we that we missed. Yeah, that would be awesome. Yeah. So, like I said, down here in the southeast, humidity is rarely an issue. Um, a lot of people think that they have to miss their snakes daily, which I guess if you live out west or you live up north where it's drier, maybe you have to. But the only time I really missed any of mine is when I noticed them going into a shed cycle. Okay. Um, as soon as I see them sort of torn turning blue. I'll hose them down at night, let that cage dry out. Once that cage is dried out, whatever the following night is at that point, I'll hose them down again and basically do that until they shed and then making sure they have regular water changes. Like there are species that definitely seems to appreciate having fresh water regularly. Yeah. Um, they will drink. Like if you spray them directly, they will drink. That's been something that's been kind of interesting because I've had some animals that as soon as I spray them, they like tuck their head in and they just want me to leave them alone. But then I've had some that just drink like crazy, like they haven't been drinking at all lately. Um, yeah, that seems to be more of an individual animal sort of basis in my experience. Um, I think having pothos or something growing in the water bowl or maybe a separate bowl, something that they can't knock over because when they are out moving around at night, they are pretty destructive. It's kind of amazing. Um, that definitely helps with the ambient humidity uh, in a in a tub or a cage. Pothos are nice because you can grow them pretty much anywhere with, with yeah. very little effort um they're possible to kill 
Yeah, yeah. And it's it's one of those things where you don't want to keep them like I said, I let the I let the the tubs and stuff dry out before I missed them again because I don't want them sitting on just soggy wet substrate constantly. Yeah. You know, when they first come out of the egg and stuff, you definitely want to keep that high and I do want them on like wet paper towel for the first couple days, uh at least until their first shed and then I'll keep them a little on the drier side, but the combination of like either the plants or oversized water bowls definitely seem to have a make a big difference uh, for me at least too. Do they ever sit in um, them? No. no. I've had some that they would sit on the edge, but I think it was literally a, a this is the closest thing to me. I'm just going to use that like as a perch. Or it works as a perch. Yeah. yeah. Um, babies like hydration is definitely a, an important part uh, for them as far as like they don't bowel movements are super infrequent. Like that is one of the nice things is unlike colubrids, unlike your rat snakes and stuff like these guys don't go often. And typically, another little tip and trick, I guess, if you're getting into chondros, is like, if they haven't gone in a while, I'll spray them. Because for whatever reason, we found that if you hose, like if you miss them or you get them, uh, like you simulate rainfall, for whatever reason, that tells them, okay, I'm going to go. And there's a couple theories as to why that is. Um, the one that I sort of buy into the most is like, it simulates rainfall and because they're ambush predators, it washes away the scent. So the you know potential prey doesn't know they're there. Um, that's that okay. I was thinking like I was thinking wash away like you're just cleaning the tree you're sitting on, but that's that makes way yeah, more sense. No, I think it's a, I think it's a scent thing, and there's been a few times where it's like I noticed an animal. It's pretty obvious when they have to go. Okay, like, you can tell they start looking pretty sausagey. Yeah. Um, and so if I notice one has to go and they haven't gone in a while, like I'll spray them and I'll come back the next morning, and sure enough, like lo and behold, there it is. It's almost like a magic trick. Um, that seems to, to help out a lot. And so I don't miss mine daily by any means. I miss them. Like I said, if they're going into a shed cycle, I miss them. Uh, if I think they need to go, sometimes I'll miss them just if I think maybe they, they just need some, some fresh water and maybe that's what I need to get them to stimulate to drink. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're, they're really not difficult snakes to keep. Um, there was something else you asked earlier that I, we completely got off like derailed on i derailed it um oh, I, I don't remember either i'm trying to think of what it was hmm. i don't know if it had to do with color change or what was it I don't know. it'll probably come to me as soon as we finish yeah, as yeah well i don't i don't want to derail the derail thoughts but do they ever <laughs> drink do they ever drink um like directly out of the bowl yeah Okay, yeah, so yeah. It's not I, just if you spray them. Yeah, it's. I notice if I do a water change and I do it sort of later in the day, just before lights out, and I put a new bowl in there, I'll walk in and there will be some that'll just have their face just sitting in it. So half the time, I don't think they're even drinking. I think they kind of just fall asleep that way. But um, <laughs> that's another thing I will say is like they are smart snakes. They are not like they you, are. You don't worry too much. They're pretty, but they are dumb. Like, oh, they, they are. are okay, yeah. <laughs> they are not. <laughs> In comparison to stuff like uh, my rhino rats and and some of the other stuff, where like you can tell they're watching you and sort of the gears are turning. There's Condros, it's kind of yeah. like a hey, uh, I see something moving. I'm gonna see if it's food or not. Like, and then I'm gonna go back to sleep. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, I've had some that completely missed the mouse on the forceps and grabbed the puppy pad and wrapped it. Um. 
which yeah. is just a pain because once they're locked onto something and they wrap it, they're they're pretty strong. I mean, they're they're not going to give it up easy. It's not going to be one of those things where you can just kind of tap them and let them to get them to let go. Like I actually think they wrap it harder when you start tapping them because they think yeah. it's alive still. Trying to get away um, from them. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, there's that's that's one thing too that a, like a quick tip is like if you're going to feed them with with forceps, don't hold it below them. Like don't put the mouse between them and the floor of the cage because. They are pretty accurate most of the time, but like I've said, I've had on multiple occasions, whether it's a smaller animal or a larger animal, like they grab the paper towel, they grab the puppy pad, and it's either they've completely missed the mouse or they've grabbed both the mouse and the pad or the substrate. And so if you're going to do it, I typically now try to come at them at the same level or like slightly above. Like I said, you open the tub and they're, they're already like, what's that? So, yeah. So I offer it to them, you know, directly try not to offer to them beneath them because they're just you're gonna get they're gonna get crap all in their mouth you know whether it's particulate substrate or the pad or whatever it's just it's a pain and half the time now like if it happens which it doesn't happen often anymore thankfully um i just give them a few minutes and i guess they they finally figure out that it's not food and they just let it go and oh they do figure out they don't just swallow everything no i had <laughs> oh i had one animal that did when it was small it was a juvenile for sure <clears throat> Um, completely, it grabbed the, I think it was a fuzzy at the time, it grabbed the fuzzy and the paper towel, and I just tore the paper towel so that it would not be, like, completely attached to the, the fuzzy, you know, and I was thinking, okay, well, it's gonna start eating it, that piece of paper towel fall off, whatever. Um, yeah. I came back in, like, an hour later, and both that piece of paper towel and that fuzzy were gone. It ate the paper towel. Wow, so. okay. Yeah, it's a good um, thing that they can digest that, I guess. Well, and that's. I to wasn't. <laughs> I was. I was. At first, I was like, "Crap, this snake's gonna die!" Like it just ate this. It's not gonna be able to pass it. It's not gonna digest it. It was a big piece. Yeah, okay. I think it was. It was like a the whole, whole piece body. itself yeah. was like a bigger. Was probably about the size of like three quarters. Okay. Like U.S. quarters. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm going to see what I can do. And I just, I left it be for a couple of days. I was like, this could go either way. I noticed that lump never went anywhere. Like it didn't digest it. And so okay. finally after like, I think about a week or so, it ended up regurging it. Okay. And the snake was fine after that. Like I never had, I gave it, I think like two weeks off, off of food, maybe longer. And that snake came back fine. Like I didn't have any issues. It gave that paper towel back, but never had a problem after that and it's now with alan stevens out in california um never eating paper towels again yeah that was like <laughs> one of those times where i was like i'm an idiot i think it was a live it was a live fuzzy or something because that's what i had at the time and i just i put it in there and of course it saw it and just went crazy and grabbed both the the fuzzy and the paper towel and wrapped it and i was like okay well i'll just at first i tried to just pull it out of the coils to try and get it out of there and that didn't work and so finally i was just like okay i'll just rip i'll rip it so that it's just a piece and then as it eats, it'll fall down, no problem, and it was gone. It ate it. So, I'll have to send you the picture of it. I have it on my phone somewhere. Yeah, that that would be. Years I'd ago. like to see that. Yeah, because I, I took it like I took it and I unfolded because I was curious just how big of a piece it was, and I like unfolded it, and it was still was perfectly like, oh fine. It was pretty big, yeah. And I put it next to like a quarter, and it's it's a decent sized piece of paper towel. I was that's, I was sure that snake was was done. I was like, this thing's it's gonna die, yeah. but didn't did fine. That's very interesting. 
Yeah. Do you use uh, the puppy pads for all all your snakes, or is it just the, the chondros? Just the chondros, the the rat snakes and stuff. Every time, so with the bairds and stuff, especially anytime I've kept them on paper towel or puppy pads, they flip their bowl. Like they flip the water bowl mm-hmm. and they turn the cage into a swamp. Yeah. When I keep them on bedding, you know, aspen is typically what I like to use now. Like I don't have that problem. They're not flipping the bowls like they were before. I don't know what it was about just being on paper towel or puppy pad. Um, but the really destructive stuff like the rat snakes, like they're either on cypress mulch or they're on aspen. Um, stuff in quarantine is going to be on paper towel or puppy pad, depending on the size. For sure. Um, and the puppy pads just work for chondras because they're just they're not they're not hanging out on the puppy pad all the time. Like at night they're cruising and whatnot. But you know I'm not worried about them trashing the trashing the cage or the tub. You know. Yeah. They they do move around a lot, and there was a point where I had. Uh, like a one of the taller deli cups with a pothos growing in it with soil and everything and i had one one chondro in particular that would just continually like i had it in one of the 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 cup holders that attaches to the side of the tub via screws from david brahms and specialty enclosure designs and it just kept popping that thing out and so i'd wake up in the morning and that whole cup would be on the floor dirt everywhere and so i'd put it back and then the same thing next night on the floor. And so finally I just took it out. I was like, whatever, dude. It's like you don't want plants, I won't give you plants. <laughs> yeah. I was like, you've 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 revoked your uh your plant privileges. But yeah. when I keep them in the water bowl, like every now and then they'll they'll the plants will somehow find their way out of the bowl and I'll just put them back in. But they definitely seem to not destroy things as much if the plants are just growing in the bowl itself. And then it's easier to clean, you just pick it up, throw it yep. out. And yeah, that, that makes and then sense. if they if they end up going to the bathroom in the water with the plant in there that I'll take the plant and I'll rinse it off real good. Just cause if I'm putting clean water in there, I don't want to take, yeah. you know, gross plant root Paul yeah. and just put it in clean water. Cause then I'm pretty much right back where I started. So, no, for sure. you know, I'll rinse those off real good and then I'll put it back in. But, um, I also found with, with plants and doing that, like start out with a bigger clump of, of plot pothos. Like what I'll do is I'll go to Walmart. They have decent sized pothos planted for like 10 bucks. I'll get that and I'll actually split it up into like four sections. So I'll, I'll take the plant out and then I have like four nice sized bundles of pothos with roots and everything. I rinse off those roots. Uh, ideally you want to probably give it about a month planted in either organic soil that doesn't have any fertilizers or anything or, or just bleach water. Dip. Yeah. Something to just to get the fertilizers and yeah. stuff off. Um, you know, with frogs. Same yeah. Thing. Yeah. I bleached dip everything. Yeah. Yeah. And so, let them cycle like you would with dart frog tanks and stuff like that, just so they're safe to put in the bowls and whatnot. But it looks good, especially in sort of a more simple setup. It does add some greenery. Um, like I said, it does seem to bump up the ambient humidity a good bit. And it uh, it just gives the, the cage a little more depth. And pizzazz. Pizzazz. It's, not <laughs> yeah. just, it's not just a, a puppy pad with a perch, you know? No, which I, 100%. There have been times where I've posted pictures on Instagram of just the basic conjure setups that I use. And, you know, you have people in Europe that are like, that's a horrible way to keep a snake. And I'm like, it's the best way to keep these, though. Like, yeah. have you ever have kept you tried a damn chondro? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, I, I, I like, that's, that's going to be my catchphrase at some point. It's like, have you tried it? Okay, like, come back. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It can be done, you know. It's just one of those things. I just with naturalistic setups, I just feel like you're you're creating more headaches for yourself. Um, yeah, personally, I've seen naturalistic setups, but I've never tried chondro, so I don't know how what, yeah. what way well, I go with that. Yeah, just from the aspect of you know, as crazy as they get with food and the response and like mouthfuls of every great and um, maintaining 
good humidity and good temperatures uh that won't kill the plants you know like <laughs> it can be done it's just people i like i said i think people just assume that it's gonna it has to be like this hardcore jungle super hot super humid like blow out of a naturalistic setup and i just they're much more temperate than that like they're where they come from doesn't is nothing like what emerald tree boas experience you know it's it's much uh much cooler than that and on the temperature front too there i mean there's in that that book from julander and philip i think they they mention people finding condos when it was like 55 degrees in papua and they like were acti- actively hunting active, yeah. yeah yeah okay and there's been a few times where mine got got on the colder side and they do find like the room would dip into you know the upper mid 60s and they do find like they don't they don't seem to care like they they seem to do in my opinion i think they do better at cooler temperatures than they do hot um and that's just because that yeah that just goes back to that operational temperature thing you know it's like they're not operating when it's the hottest they're operating when it's the coolest um that makes sense yeah so yeah so all in all would you recommend chondros for people to or would you recommend them as a as a pet I already Absolutely. know what you're going to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. It's one of those things. Would I recommend him as a first snake? Um, Probably not. It can be done. My buddy Luke, who has a handful of chondros now, his first snake was a chondro, and he's done phenomenal with them. It's just it's making sure you're obviously doing your research. I mean, that's kind of a given, but, you know, ask around. A lot of people that are keeping chondros on, like, a serious level, everyone kind of does it the same way. There's just mild variations to, to how maybe they're doing it. And that's going to be dependent on where they live in the country. Um, but that book from, from Julander and Philip, you can get on Amazon. I think still, um, I hundred percent is one of my favorite books. You know, it's, it's worth every penny. You can get the Maxwell book too. So there was sort of this debate at one point about, should I get the Maxwell book or should I get the Julander Philip book? And my, my answer was like, just get both. Cause there's still relevant information in the Maxwell book. For sure. Um, I just consider the Julianer and Philip one sort of the updated version that's much more in line with with how they should be kept in captivity. Um, and that whole book sort of changed my outlook on on how we keep things in, in general. general. Like yeah. natural history, I'm a firm believer of like screw a care sheet, go look up a scientific paper on how people are finding these things in the wild and like what are they finding that they're eating in the gut content? Like what are they doing how much rainfall are they getting in their natural habitat you know their range how much what, what's the weather patterns looking like in their range and like do your best to sort of accommodate to that uh care sheets are fine and all but there's they're entirely too basic i think to to fully get the job done i think if you you look at things like natural history you're it's going to make your life a lot easier because you have you're much more in tune with what's actually happening what they're physiologically built to to, to do i absolutely agree that's that's how i go about doing things as well and there's actually uh, the book, uh, speaking of books, there's actually the book you posted on the review on, on the Herpeticulture Network mm-hmm. the other day that I'm looking to pick up. That that it sounds like it's going to be an interesting read. Which one was that? Um, the I can't remember the name of the author or anything. The the history of the hobby, basically. Oh, that, Dragon yes. Traders. Yeah. That, that's dude, the one. Yes, Dragon Traders. Such yes. a good book. Like, yeah. I am blown away at how detailed that was because, I mean, that book literally starts... I think in like the 1800s. Okay. Wow. Like late 1800s. Like, well, uh, maybe early 1900s. But either way, I mean, like the, the amount of detail and, and research that Michael Berger had to do to get that book together is just astonishing. 
Yeah. Because it literally starts those early 1900s and like the days of like traveling circuses and stuff like that. Close all the way up, all the way up until now. And yeah, I, I need it, to read it. It's I need to read it again. Like it is such, <laughs> it's such a cool book. When I saw that was coming out, I was super excited. And I meant to have Michael Berger on the show, you know, around the time it came out, but he was already on a handful of other podcasts. And I usually if that's the case, I'll try to space some out. Um you know, so oh, we're not sense, asking yeah. the same questions and stuff that everyone else already has. And that makes um, sense. I also wanted to read the book before I, you know, wanted to have him on the show and, and have some sort of idea of what it was about. But Seems yeah, I can't it pretty fast. Yeah, yeah, I, <laughs> I fully recommend it. There's even a like a two or three page section on the Okatee Hunt Club, which is right here in my area. That's where like all the the smoking hot corn snakes originally came from back in like the 50s and 60s and stuff. So that's awesome. I thought that was pretty cool. Not, yeah. Still need to get out that way with Jake. We keep talking about going and road cruising out there. It just hasn't happened yet. Let me know when that, what, how that goes. Yeah. <laughs> if yeah. it ever happens. Yeah. That, that, I bet, I bet you see some pretty cool stuff down there. South Carolina's got the best corn snakes in the world, man. No one can change my mind on that, especially the ones here. In the, and that's in why the you live there. That's right. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Well, Smitty, Justin, thank you very much for coming on, man. Can you let everybody know where you can find you? uh yeah palmetto coast exotics on instagram and facebook um we have a youtube channel it's the herpeticulture network that was originally like the palmetto coast one but i just switched it over uh, i still add videos in terms of like my collection and stuff i'm doing there so um there's that herpeticulture network.com i've been trying to add some articles to that slowly but surely uh, herpeticulture network podcast so Condrocast, corn stars the herpeticulture podcast Snakes and Stogies, Lizard Brain Radio, all that good stuff, anywhere podcasts are found. And uh, a man of many, many it. talents. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's awesome. And I'll have all of those, every single one of them in the in the show notes. Go check out all those podcasts. They're, I mean, I've binged them all at this point, so they're, they're all incredible. Um, yeah. Thank you very much for coming on, man. I, I yeah, really man. do appreciate it. And, and I, I, I apologize to anybody listening if I completely butchered locality stuff in the beginning and scientific names and whatnot and i know it's the internet a lot of people like to nitpick over a lot of stupid small stuff but it is what it is i i would <laughs> i personally wouldn't know if you did so you're, you're good <laughs> no that's awesome um yeah i i i pronounce well are you mean pronunciations or just general information a little bit of both yeah okay yeah i butcher both all the time as well <laughs> Sweet. Uh, I'm Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Daffy's Roundtable for the yeah, podcast man. again on all streaming platforms. Uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thanks, guys. Thank you.